Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 6. We're actually going to finish Luke 6, believe it or not. I don't know how many messages are in Luke 6, but I'm scared to look. There's a lot of them. The Great Pyramid in Egypt is arguably one of the greatest, if not the greatest structure ever built by men. The pyramid was originally 481 feet tall at its peak and 755 feet long on each side. The pyramid is constructed of 2.5 million blocks of limestone and granite, each weighing an average of 2.6 tons apiece, which makes the total weight of the pyramid 6,300,000 tons. Of biblical significance is that they have discovered salt deposits way up high on the pyramid, which seems to indicate that at one point the pyramid was actually underwater. Not only that, they found seashells stuck in the cracks of the rocks or the stone blocks on the lower portion of it. And this means that that great pyramid might have been built before the time of Noah and that it endured the flood. No matter what, it endured some sort of flood. And it's so huge, it makes you wonder how the ocean got up that high if it wasn't during the time of Noah. The Great Pyramid was originally encased with 22 surface acres of highly polished white limestone. On the cap of the pyramid was a black capstone, probably made of onyx. They aren't sure, but they have records of people seeing it saying it was shiny black. The limestone was eventually moved in 1356 by an Arab sultan who wanted to build mosques and fortresses out of it. And so the pyramid was plundered. And so now we can't really see anything really about the watermarks. But you need to ask yourself this. How could something even as great as the Great Pyramid endure the flood? How could it stand there and not have its foundations eroded and its stones topple into ruin. Even though the Great Pyramid covers more than 13 acres, 566,280 square feet, its base, the, the corners of the foundation, deviate less than a half of an inch. That's more precision than we could build anything that's 13 acres at the base. So why didn't it fall down? Why didn't it crumble? Because it was built on solid bedrock. As a matter of fact, the bedrock swells up underneath of it. There's like a mound of solid bedrock and then it was chiseled so that it would not move. And just as solid foundations are important for building pyramids, they're also important for our spiritual lives, for our souls. Every one of us here has our soul resting on something. The question is, what is it? 
What is the foundation of your soul? And it is to this very thing that Jesus addresses as he closes the Sermon on the Mount. Now, before we look at Luke 6, I want you to turn to Matthew 7. Matthew 7 is a parallel account, Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason we're looking at Matthew is Matthew gives us more detail than Luke, includes different things than Luke, and especially Matthew focuses on the end of the sermon more than Luke. Now, I'm not going to do a detailed exposition here of Matthew, but I just want to summarize big chunks so that you can see the context and the flow of Jesus' sermon as it's heading towards the passage we're going to look at in Luke. Look at Matthew 7, verse 13. As Jesus closes the sermon, he wants to bring the crowd to a place of decision, a place of reckoning, a place where they realize who they are and where their life is at, what foundation is holding up their soul. And he says this, starting in verse 13, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Here Jesus says this, There's only two ways. A very broad way with a broad gate, and a very narrow way with a narrow gate. And you know what both the gates say above them? This way to heaven. The problem is, is only one gate gets you there. The other one leads to destruction. Look at Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Here Jesus speaks about false teachers, false prophets, both true and false prophets and teachers. Tell those who listen to them, I'm telling you the truth. Do you know false prophets never go around saying, I'm speaking lies to you? They all say, I'm telling you the truth, just like true prophets and teachers do. And you know what? Many follow those false teachers and end up in destruction, hell, and few follow the good teachers. Jesus' point, who are you following? What road are you taking? What gate are you entering? What teacher are you following? Look at Matthew 7, 21 and 23. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. First, Jesus makes it clear that you don't get into heaven by merely claiming to know Jesus and claiming him as your Lord. Lord, Lord doesn't cut it all by itself. You got to do something. You have to follow him as Lord. But not only that, his second example is you can even claim to be a follower of Jesus. You can even acknowledge his lordship and you can do good works and still not get in if he doesn't know you. The word know here is to have an intimate relationship with. These people were doing all kinds of miraculous things. Calling him Lord, Lord. They knew who Jesus was. They were in the church. They're doing good deeds. And Jesus says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness or sin. All while they were doing those good deeds, all while they were saying Lord, Lord, all while they were in the church doing their religious deeds, they were practicing lawlessness. So as we come to our text in Luke, remember, 
This is what Jesus just said. I mean, he is bring, bringing down the hammer here at the end. He wants to make sure every single person there knows exactly where they're at spiritually. He is forcing us to reckon with our true condition. Look at Luke 6 now, verses 46 through 49. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building his house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when the flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. From our text here, Jesus makes three declarative statements to you, which are designed to reveal the true condition and foundation of the soul of your life. So you can know for certain whether or not your foundation, the foundation of your life, your eternal being is rested on the rock or on shifting sand. Declaration number one, verse 46, to you who are self-deceived, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? See, there's a problem with that. That's, that's an oxymoron. Lord means master. Lord means I'm slave. Lord means you're in charge. I'm not. You give the orders. I follow. That's what Lord means. The clear and obvious problem that Jesus is stating here is how can you claim to be his follower if you are not following pretty simple being a christian is not about saying you're a christian or even about professing that jesus is your lord and savior only it's about being saved transformed by god's grace into a follower of jesus christ now if you are a professional baseball player and you go around telling people hey i play for the la dodgers and yet you always practice with the angels and play for the angels you are deluded. You are self-deceived. No, the real members of the Dodgers practice with the Dodgers. They've been chosen by the Dodgers and they play for the Dodgers. Well, there are many professing Christians who call Jesus their Lord, but who are practicing and playing for the great fallen angel, Satan. They live for Satan. They do the deeds of Satan. They have the desires of Satan. They love the world that Satan runs. They are not on Christ's team. Listen, if you're going to call Jesus your Lord, then get on his side and walk in his way. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, usually, though, when you start talking to people who say, well, you know, um... 
I, you know, I know I'm not really following the Lord, but I'm saved. They usually run to one of two strongholds, sometimes both. They, the first stronghold they run to is they look to their past to confirm their present spiritual condition. Have you ever done this? Have you ever talked to anybody who's done this? You start talking to them about the Lord and they never talk about, well, right now, this is what God's doing in my life. Right now, you know, I'm learning this. Right now, God is giving me the grace to do this or that and the other thing. It's all about when they were little and they asked Jesus in their heart. It was all about the time when, you know, they went to youth camp and after five days of sleep, deprivation broke down into emotional crumble at the last day and gave their heart to Christ. It's about the ministry they used to serve in. The good old days when they used to be into the Bible when they actually read a systematic theology one day. You know what? It's true. That if someone is presently saved, they have a past salvation. They have an experience they can point to. But you know what? The assurance of salvation is always to be had in the present, never in the past. Is there a present reality of God's transforming grace working in your life today? That is what's going to give you assurance or not. Does your life today reveal that Jesus is the Lord and master of your life? That you are his follower? That you are growing in holiness? Then have assurance. You say, well, Jack, how come we can't just go to the back? You know, back to my life when I was six. Do you remember the parable so that Jesus told of the soils? Do you remember he talked about a couple of the soils there, like the seed sown among the weedy places? And did it spring up? Yes. But what happened? The worries of the world and the seafulness of riches choked the word out and it never bore any fruit. And then there was the seed sown among the rocks. Did it spring up? Oh, yes. Right away, immediately, the text says. But then what happened? Trials. And persecution, which came from trying to walk with Christ, caused the word to become unfruitful. They never bore fruit. They never were saved. So don't always look to the past. Sure, you can say, yeah, I was saved in this date. But now today, I know I'm saved because God is doing this in my life today. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying works save you. Every time I say this, somebody says, well, are you trying to say we're saved by works? No. I want you to know, I'm going to die teaching salvation by grace. Because that's what the scriptures teach. You know, by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. But when you are saved... Your life changes. You become a new creature. You're regenerated. You're changed from glory to glory into the image of Christ. You progress in sanctification. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So you don't see any change. There's no new creature. There's no transformed life. There's no growing in holiness. 
You're not on the Dodgers. <laughs> the grace of God, says Titus, brings salvation to us. And it instructs us to deny ungodliness and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. It not only saves us, it sanctifies us, makes us more holy. And if you're just claiming the one, but you aren't experiencing the other, Jesus' question is, why are you calling me Lord, Lord? A second way people sustain their self-delusion about their present spiritual condition is they cling to the exception verses of the scripture. You start talking to them about their lives and you know you're living in sin and you've been living in sin and this doesn't bode well and you know you really don't. Hey, 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 David, David committed adultery, David murdered And he didn't repent for nine months. Have you ever used that excuse? You ever heard somebody use that excuse? I'm telling you, it is very warped reasoning to try to go to David's fall into gross immorality and murder to justify your salvation. It's true, David did sin greatly. He didn't repent of his sin. But when he was confronted, what did he do? He immediately repented. And most people use that excuse, don't, when they're confronted. You need to realize, first of all, that the story of David's sin is a great failure. And it's in the pages of Scripture to warn us not to be like him. Not to say, oh, I can be like him and have security. Secondly, realize that during David's nine months of repentance, Psalm 32 and 51 make it clear that he was miserable. He was a miserable wretch. He was just, God's hand was upon him. His body was wasting away as with the fever heat of summer. He was just miserable. Third, realize that as soon as he was confronted, he repented right there and then on the spot without hesitation. The truth of the matter is, yes, David's sin was exceptionally great for a believer. The truth of the matter is, he was miserable during his months of unrepentance. And the truth of the matter is, when confronted, he immediately repented. So he's not a very good person to run to. He is the exception of great wickedness in a believer. Others try to say, well, you know, what about 1 Timothy 1.20 where it talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander and then, and then Paul was giving them over to Satan so they would be taught not to blaspheme. Well, Paul doesn't say they're saved. They were kicked out of the church because they were blaspheming God. Is that a characteristic of a believer? Yeah, I'm a Christian. I blaspheme God. No, you love God when you're a Christian. You don't blaspheme him. Satan isn't to be your teacher. Satan is the teacher of those who act like unbelievers. Yes, they were put out of the church, but hey, don't go to Hymenaeus and Alexander and say, I know I'm saved because they were ungodly too. That's, that's twisted. Others say, well, well, you know, don't you think they could be saved? Well, Paul described himself in 1 Timothy 1.13 as a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. But he used the past tense. He was that. He didn't didn't say, well, I am. He stopped being that. 
Others say, but what about, what about 1 Corinthians 3 verses 12 through 15? You know, where Paul says, listen, you know, if any man builds on this foundation and it, it doesn't remain and, you know, he has this wood, hay, straw and stubble in his life and it's all burn up. And, and verse 15 says, and if any man's work is burn up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as so through fire. See right there. That's my life. It's just going to be burn up. But man, I'm getting in. Don't kid yourself. Paul is not saying that the people described in verse 15 have no good works. What he's saying is, is these believers, they're saved, they get in, have works that are destroyed and have no eternal significance. They don't remain. Most likely, the text is talking about deeds that we do that have no eternal significance, not sins. Why do you say that? Well, because believers have all their sins what? Forgiven. Yeah, we just learned about it this morning. Now, you're washed whiter than slow. You have perfect atonement. You are justified. You are made righteous by Christ. Righteousness given to you. And so that stuff is gone. What most likely Paul is talking about is that, you know, when you eat a piece of pizza or have a bowl of ice cream, I mean, there's no eternal significance in that. You aren't going to have this great reward for your bowl of ice cream. Or because, you know, you, you listen to some classical music one afternoon. There's a lot of things we can do as believers that aren't necessarily sin, but they don't remain. They have no eternal significance. But even if Paul was saying that believers may sin all their life and still get to heaven, this text would still be the very rare exception. The very rare exception. And you don't want to live in the realm of the exception. That's like living on the edge of the cliff. And you're telling people, yeah, I haven't fallen off. The ground is firm right here on the edge. And all your friends are standing back going, he's going to fall off. And you know what? Most likely he will. Now, what we need to ask is this. What do the bulk of New Testament texts teach us? What do the bulk of New Testament texts tell us about the believer's life when it comes to works? That is where you find your doctrine. Sure, there are those exception texts, and I know they're there. But the bulk of the texts say, The assurance of your salvation comes from seeing God working in your life. Again, I'm not saying you're saved by works. And when I read these verses, these verses are not teaching works salvation. They're teaching salvation that works. Matthew 3.10, we looked at it last week. John the Baptist, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's pretty clear. John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You believe? Eternal life. You don't obey? Wrath of God. Now, is he saying you need to obey so you can earn your salvation? No. But if you're saved, you will obey. 
In Galatians 5, 19 through 21, Paul says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Are you practicing anything like that in your life? Is that characteristic of your life? Here's a word from God. Of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty clear. You say, well, maybe this is an exception text, Jack. Well, then look in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. It says the same thing. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. It says the same thing. Titus 1, 15 and 16 says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and conscience are defiled. Now he's talking about unbelievers. He says that. Unbelieving. Verse 16. They profess to know God. Unbelievers who profess to know God. Lord, Lord. He goes on to say, they profess to know him, but by their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Hebrews 5, 9, speaking of Christ says, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him, the source of eternal salvation. James 2, 14, 17, 20, and 26 have a very subtle message. See if you can pick up on it. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? Implied answer in the Greek? No. Verse 17, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Verse 20, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Bottom line, saving faith works. 1 John 3, 7 through 10, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil for the devil is sin from the beginning. The son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot practice sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. That's pretty clear. Now, I want you to know that's just the tip of the iceberg. If we had more time, I'd just keep reading and reading verses to you until you just got nauseous. That's what the New Testament teach. The bulk of the text teach that. Saving faith changes you into a follower of Christ. Perfect? No. Christians still sin. And John, the last text we that says, if anyone says he has no sin, he's a liar. The truth is not. If you even deny you're, you're a sinner, then that shows you're not a believer too. Now, admit that you are a sinner. But if you're practicing sin, if sin is the characteristic of your life, if you're able to continue in rebellion and not have remorse and not have repentance and not confess... Just tell yourself the truth. Listen, I'm not a Christian. I'm just going to church because I like it. Jesus asks you this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And every one of us needs to answer the question. If he was your Lord, your master, your king, you would follow him. 
Second declaration. Declaration number two. To you who have your house built upon the rock. Look at verses 47 and 48. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them. Stop there for a second. Jesus gives three necessary criteria. He's going to tell a little parable now. But before he tells a parable, he gives three criteria that we can evaluate our own soul by to see whether our soul is established on the rock or not. The first criteria is everyone who comes to me. What does this mean? Come to Jesus. It means come to Jesus for salvation. It means whatever you were coming to before, you turn your back on that, and now you're pursuing Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, as your Master, to follow Him, to believe in Him, to walk for Him. In Luke fourteen twenty six, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me, listen to this, And does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Coming to Jesus is a total commitment that if necessary, you would give up the world and all your most precious relationships and all your possessions and everything you have to follow him. That's what it means. In John 5:40, Jesus told the Pharisees, "You are unwilling to come to me that you might have eternal life. Coming to Jesus is coming to salvation." So obviously, he's not talking about some mental acknowledgement that he exists. This is made crystal clear in John 6, 35, 37, 40, 45 and 65, which all talk about coming to Christ as a act of God whereby he saves somebody and they come and he loses none. The second criteria is, look at the text, here's my words. Not only do you need to come to Jesus in saving faith, you need to hear his words. Or you might say this, those who come to Jesus do hear his words. And they hear so as to obey. How do you know that? Third criteria, middle of verse 47, and acts on them. That's how I know. They act on them. They come to Jesus in saving faith, believing he's the Messiah, believing he's the Savior, believing he died on the cross, was buried, rose again the third day, and they hear his words and they act on them. And if this is you, Jesus has some great words for you. Look at verse 48. I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. You know, my wife always laughs at me because I can hardly get something built and I want to build something else, something bigger. I like building. And the bigger the project and the harder it is, I like stone and concrete and, you know, big timbers. I just love that stuff. I just love building. So this right here, man, I just am in the groove on this text. It's hard to just not launch off and do a whole bunch of stuff. That's really boring to most people. It's clear from Matthew's account of this that the flood and torrent of water, which Jesus refers to here, is the judgment of God on the last day. 
And notice the latter half of verse 48. The guy builds his house and he says, and when the flood occurred and the torrent burst against that house, it could not shake it. Because it had been well built, Matthew says, because it was founded on the rock. Fanny Crosby wrote a classic hymn which speaks of Moses who, desiring to see the glory of God, was stuck in the cleft of the rock. The the song is, He hideth my soul. Listen to the words. A wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord, a wonderful Savior to me. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock where the rivers of pleasure I see. A wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord. He taketh my burden away. He holdeth me up and I shall not be moved. He giveth me strength as my day. And the classic chorus, he hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, la- a dry and thirsty land. He hideth my life in the depths of his love and covers me there with his hand. He covers me there with his hand. And what does that mean? You're never shaken. You know Christ as your savior. You come to him in faith. You turn from your sins. You receive him. You hear his word. You strive to obey him. You are on the rock and you'll never be moved. And when the torrents of God's omnipotent judgment come upon you, you will not be moved because you're on the rock. Now, some of you may be saying, but what if I don't meet those criteria? Well, Jesus has declaration three for you to you who have no foundation for your life. Look at verse 49. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly. This is almost identical phrase, but notice Jesus leaves out one of the criteria. There's only two here. He leaves out the criteria that appears in the previous example, comes to me. This person doesn't come to Jesus for salvation. Oh, they hear Jesus and they don't act. The one is, comes, hears, and acts. This one is, hears, and acts. If they came, they would be saved, and then they wouldn't fit into this category. There are those who listen to Jesus. They come and observe Jesus. They come and listen to the preaching. They come and enjoy the fellowship. They they like the intellectual stimulation of expository preaching, maybe. They may even read their Bible. They may even attend a small group. But they do not act. They do not act upon the word of God. And if this describes you, Jesus has an analogy for you too. The person who does not act, Jesus says, the middle of verse 49, is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. There's no foundation here. I heard that. Hey, let me just tell you something. I, I'm sorry, I have to deviate here. In the, in the first service, when I said that exact same thing, someone else's phone rang. So I don't know, it's a sign. But there's two things you can learn from this builder here. The first is, the guy's lazy. The guy's lazy. He was unwilling to work hard to establish a solid foundation for his house. He was unwilling to pay the price. All you have to do 
if you want to have no foundation, you just find a level spot in the dirt and get a shovel and a transit and just smooth it out. And you know what? You can get your base plate and lay it right down there and you put your ledger on there and your floor joists and your flooring and build your walls and you can build a beautiful house. As a matter of fact, a house that is just as beautiful as a house with a stone foundation built on the rock. And you know what? You can't tell the difference. Why? Because the foundation is everything below the ground. And you could look at it and it might even be the same color as the house built upon the rock. And they might be built next to each other and people would drive by and say, oh, look at two, quote, identical houses. Secondly, it's obvious that this second builder thought only of the present and not the future. You know what makes the difference between a good builder and a bad builder is good builders think ahead. They think ahead. They look to the future and say, now, what am I going to need to do here before I pour this big concrete slab? Am I going to need something on the other side? I mean, you know, you have to cut the slab open. You know, do I want to plug here before I cover up the wall? You think ahead. This guy is obviously not thinking ahead. It's a dry season. He's laying his foundation. Really no foundation. He's just putting his house right on the dirt, the sand. That's it. Where the termites can get to it. And you know what? When you look at those two identical structures, you say, you know, they're identical. They're the same. No, they're not. The most important part is below the surface. The part you cannot see. And the structural integrity of that house will not be determined until the rainy season, the hurricane, the mudslide, the tornado, the violent earthquake. Most of us have seen those pictures on the news, and we probably all have. Where, you know, the rainy season this year, and they had those multi-million dollar homes on the edge of the cliff, and you just saw them fall off, and their whole swimming pools and everything just crunch and just smash into nothing. And I look at that, and I just, there's one word that, what, that comes to my mind, fool. And I can just hear the conversation between, you know, those people, because, you know, they, they always have the news cameras, and they show these distraught women, my house, I've lost everything. But what they don't do is go back and show you the footage when that woman was telling the builder and her husband, listen, this part of the hill hasn't fallen off yet. I know it's unstable ground. I know that there's no rock here, but hey, the view's good. Look at the view. I mean, our house will be worth so much. I mean, this piece of, of dirt here has been here for a long time. Yeah, it used to be way inland. <laughs> and now it's on the edge. Hello. And so the builder says, okay, lady, I'll tell you, I'll, you know, we'll dig down deep. We'll put a nice concrete foundation on the dirt. And they do. And then when the rains come, the floods burst again the house. And it falls. And great is its fall. That's exactly what happens. We see it every single year. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. 
There's these people in the church and you look at them and you look at the believer and they're an unbeliever and they're sitting next to the believer but you can't tell them apart. They look the same. They're doing the same thing. They're saying the same thing. They know the same jargon. One is built on the rock. The other, the sand. And you know what? You'll never tell in this life. You'll never tell. That's why this passage is one of the scariest texts in all the Bible because these people don't find out until judgment day that they aren't built on Christ. They know who he is. They even say, Lord, Lord, and some are even doing good works. But they don't know him. They've never come to him for salvation. And when judgment day comes... The end of verse 49 says, And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. The house here is your soul. Now you may think, well, what could be the application of this verse? No, duh. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you look at your life right now, and you've never come to Jesus for salvation, I find something, I find just interesting. I love listening to testimonies. Because people say things like, well, I always went to church and everything, but I had never come and just actually given my life to Christ. I've never repented of my sins and asked Christ to forgive me and save me. Really? Is that you? You need to come to Jesus. You need to hear his words and you need to act on them. Listen, are you a sinner? You don't even have to answer. I know the answer. Yes. Let me ask you this. Is God perfectly holy? Yes. Since God is perfect, can God have a standard that is less than perfect? No. Do you think you have perfect righteousness that rivals the righteousness of an infinitely holy God? Of course not. Does God have to punish sin? Yes, he is infinitely just. And if God didn't punish even the least sin that was ever committed, if he didn't punish sin, he would no longer be infinitely just. And he is infinitely just. So every sin must be paid in full. So the question is this, is there a way for an unworthy sinner who has all of these sins cataloged against them? To escape the wrath of God. And the answer is yes. As Colossians says, he takes our sins, he having taken them out of the way and nailed them to the cross. You believe in Jesus Christ, you come to Christ as your Savior, realizing only He can do it, not you, not because of your works, not because of your righteousness, because He paid the penalty on the cross. He suffered for your sins. He died in your place. He rose again, conquering death. You believe in that with all your heart. You receive Christ and commit to follow Him. Turn your back on whatever you're following now. And you will have your soul built on the rock and it will never be moved, ever. No one will be able to snatch you from the Father's hand. But you've got to come to that place. Then you can sing Edward Moat's classic hymn, 
the solid rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. And when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. And when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone. Faultless to stand before the throne and the refrain on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Where are you standing? If you're on the sand, give your life to Christ and get on the rock. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for Jesus' words here. They are so simple and so clear. We marvel at how he labors to bring us all to the place where we answer the most important question of our entire existence. Where is our soul resting? Is it on the sand or on the rock? Have we taken the broad way that leads to destruction or the narrow way that leads to heaven? Have we followed the many teachers who lead people to hell or the few that lead them to heaven? Are we trusting in our good works to save us or our mere profession of faith, but yet not really knowing you? Father, if there is anybody here who doesn't know you, grant them repentance, bring them to salvation, humble their hearts, They might know you and love you and be transformed by your grace so they can sing on Christ, the solid rock I stand and all of the ground is sinking sand. Father, may that be true of every single person as they leave here today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.